Welcome to Tales of History and Imagination. Eccentric Tales from History by Simone Whitlock. Hi all, this week is probably the second and final unplanned episode. If you're curious, a new day job's going fine. Trigger warning on this one, it gets a little gory at times. I have an image in my mind of Josiah Wilkinson that may not be entirely accurate. More a whole scenario than an image. I imagine us transported back to some time, for argument's sake, let's say 1818. We're at an upmarket alehouse a short ride from Harley Street, London. And Wilkinson is holding court in a corner of the pub. As the beer flows, the gentleman passed judgment on German inventor Karl von Dreis. Dan Fall invented a wooden horse, if you would believe it. A newly released, anonymous novel discussing wide-ranging themes, from the sublimity of nature to the dangers of an unfettered pursuit of knowledge. I dare say that chap who wrote that book is far too fond of the opium. Romantics, they call him. <laughs> Perhaps the conversation veered to the recent passing of Seymour Fleming, the scandalous Lady Worsley. I hear she had affairs with 27 men while wedded to that sort. Yes, but the damn fool invited some of those men into his marital bed. Who does that? Sir Richard Worsen Sly, that's who. Look up, dear, Bissett's at the window. That's the one. What's that, Oliver? What happened to that African slave boy Worsley bought in Turkey? You think he murdered and cannibalized him while in Moscow? Oliver! That's preposterous! The man was a damn fool! But he was no monster! If I were writing this episode out in a longer form, I would start in 1612. And I would stay there for a while. At the time, James I, one of the bad guys in the Pendle Witches saga, was the King of England and Scotland, and by extension Wales and Ireland. His son and heir apparent, Henry Frederick, Prince of Wales, a bright, capable young man, died suddenly of typhoid fever. His passing was a heavy blow for the nation, not least of all as the new heir apparent was the awkward, incompetent, less beloved brother Charles. Now in a longer form piece, we definitely expound on Charles's tumultuous reign. We could easily spend several episodes unraveling this. But what we need to know is he ran into conflict with Parliament early on, never managing to come to a consensus with them. They clashed over religion, of course not as simple as Protestant versus Catholic, there were various factions fighting for specific permutations of Protestantism, from the almost Catholic to the very full-on Puritanism. They clashed over failed attempts to bring Scotland and Ireland into line with the official religion of the nation. King Charles and the Parliament clashed over taxes, the long-held belief the kings had a divine right to rule a nation, and over what rights a rapidly growing middle class should be granted. There was also the perception the king was a warmonger, and of course the matter of George Villiers, the Duke of Buckingham. Villiers was reputedly a lover of Charles's father, James. 
He later became Charles's wingman in a clumsy attempted wooing of the Infanta Maria Anna of Spain. Villiers' assassination in 1628 robbed the new king of one of his most trusted supporters very early on, and it isolated him all the more. Having never been trained to rule until his early teens, he lacked the diplomatic skills to navigate in an explosive time. And while he could and did dissolve Parliament on occasion, Parliament remained a necessity. War with his continental neighbours constantly loomed, and to levy the taxes needed to get an army together, Charles constitutionally needed a sitting Parliament to sign off on those taxes. By 1642, a frustrated Charles tried and failed to prorogue Parliament. Civil war erupted soon after between the Crown and the Parliament. The war did not go well for Charles, and at 2pm January 30th, 1649, a defeated Charles I knelt before the executioner's block. We don't know the identity of the executioner, but a 19th century exhumation shows it was an experienced axeman. The cut was very clean. Normally, the executioner would hold the head aloft, proclaiming, Behold the head of a traitor, to those in attendance. Possibly trying to hide his identity, the axeman remained silent. His head was sewn back on. His body was prepared for burial at Windsor Castle. At his funeral, a middle-aged parliamentarian turned cavalry officer gazed down at the corpse, exclaiming, it was a cruel necessity. That man played a vital role in the execution. He was the second signatory of 12 on the death warrant. That man, Oliver Cromwell, is our man in the box. Oliver Cromwell was born in 1599 to a gentrifying middle-class family. His grandfather made a small fortune from a brewery he established. The brewing side of the family married into the titled but disgraced forebears of Thomas Cromwell, a chief advisor to Henry VIII, who too faced the executioner's axe after falling foul of the king. Oliver studied at Sydney Sussex College in Cambridge, where he was introduced to puritanical thought. In 1620, he married Elizabeth Bautier, a young lady from an influential Puritan family. Her uncles helped the young Cromwell into politics, helping him win a parliamentary seat in Huntingdon in 1628. Cromwell wasn't overtly religious, but then he slumped into a dark night of the soul in his late thirties. From early adulthood on, Oliver Cromwell suffered severe bouts of depression. He was often bedridden for days on end in a deep blue funk. The explanation we have is that he was convinced he was a sinner in a land full of sinners and was destined to burn in hell for eternity. Oliver Cromwell had a complete nervous breakdown in 1638 and a spiritual awakening shook him out of it. Born again as a Puritan, he adopted the solipsistic goal of becoming the greatest man in the kingdom. Now, of doing a longer form piece on Cromwell, and again, people could devote whole series to him, I'd go into detail about how his radicalism made him an ideal fit amongst the parliamentarians, about how he turned into an extremely capable fighter, rising through the ranks as a cavalryman. 
how he was given the task of building their new model army. His decisive leadership in the battles of Marston Moor in 1644, Naseby in June 1645, and Langport in July 1645, were instrumental in the defeat of the king, as were his murderous raids on towns that remained loyal to the king afterwards. And if we were doing a longer-form piece, we most certainly would linger on his genocidal campaigns in both Scotland and Ireland, particularly in Ireland, where civilian deaths may have run in excess of half a million souls. He dissolved the Rump Parliament and then the Bare Bones Parliament following King Charles's execution. By 1653, feeling he had no other option available, Oliver Cromwell was declared Lord Protector of England, essentially a dictator for life. He instituted a network of major generals to enforce his regime. In an effort to save souls, he banned all joy in life, criminalising swearing, blasphemy, drunkenness and sex outside of marriage. And although he personally did not ban Christmas, the Puritans of the Long Parliament did that in 1647, he oversaw a half-hearted attempt to enforce that law on Christmas 1655. Oliver Cromwell remains a divisive figure in English history. Some see him as a heroic figure, others think of him as a monster. I personally fall in the latter camp, and think his death of kidney failure on September 3rd, 1658 was really no great loss for England. So now we've covered some background. Let's discuss his head. On 29th of May 1660, a day designated Oak Apple Day, Charles's son and namesake, now named Charles II, King of England, re-entered London. The new king forgave many of his father's enemies, but saw to it anyone responsible for his father's death warrant would be punished, whether dead or alive. On 30th of January 1661, the anniversary of Charles I's execution. Oliver Cromwell's body was dragged through the streets of London, hung from a gallows, then decapitated. His head was pierced through with an iron spike. The spike was then stuck on the end of a long pole, then was hoisted atop the Parliament buildings at Westminster Hall. A warning to future despots, his head was to remain there forever and his head may have remained there forever until it disappeared mysteriously on a stormy night in 1684. The pole snapping in the tempest, it was thrown across the courtyard. A guard found the head and secreted it away to his own home. As soon as it was noticed the head was missing, authorities went off in a mad panic, scrambling to find it. And although a large reward was offered for Oliver Cromwell's head, the sentinel in possession of it became increasingly worried he'd be accused of theft if he were to bring it in. So he stored Oliver up his chimney, where the head stayed till the guard passed on. In 1710, Oliver Cromwell's head went from cautionary tale to morbid curiosity. First it showed up in the London Curiosity Room of a Swiss calico trader named Claudius Dupoy. In amongst a cabinet full of rare coins and exotic herbs, the gnarly-looking head was a sight to behold for the many foreigners stopping by the museum. 
From there, the head found itself in the possession of Samuel Russell, an actor who performed in London's Clare Market from a stall. Now, I can't say if he ever held it up and soliloquised. Alas, poor Yorick, I knew him, Horatio, while holding Mr. Cromwell up for inspection. Oliver was, however, popular with the passers-by. People who are visiting a meat market on a lookout for legs of lamb and cuts of beef, but there you go. Russell sold the head to one James Cox, who owned a museum. But Cox chose to exhibit the head only to his closest friends, and he in turn sold it to the Hughes family, who owned a museum full of Cromwell memorabilia. They, in turn, sold it to a surgeon named Josiah Wilkinson in 1814. The head became Wilkinson's prized property. He had an oak box made to exhibit it, and took to bringing his friend Oliver with him to the local pub. One wonders what Cromwell would have thought of becoming the centre of attention in the midst of all that boozing, swearing, laughing and, one hopes, blasphemy. When someone doubted the raggedy head's provenance, Wilkinson took it out, pointing to the wart above the left eye. One friend noted of the head, a frightful skull it is, covered with its parched yellow skin, like any other mummy, and with its chestnut hair, eyebrows, and beard in glorious preservation. The head became of public interest again in the 1840s, after proponents of the great man theory of history, Thomas Carlyle, published a collection of Cromwell's letters and speeches in 1845. This was helped on somewhat by the rise of the pseudoscience of phrenology and the appearance of a rival Cromwell skull exhibited at the Ashmolean Museum. The rival skull was fairly easily dismissed as a fake when it was shown to have been in circulation in the 1670s, while Cromwell's head was verifiably still on a pike as late as 1684. Efforts to confirm our head reached a reasonable level of certainty in 1930, when the newfangled technology of the X-ray at least proved the head had been run through with an iron spike. In 1960, Dr. Horace Wilkinson, the original Dr. Wilkinson's great-grandson, handed Cromwell's head over to his old alma mater, Sydney Sussex College. On 25th of March, 1960, his head was finally laid to rest in an intimate ceremony at an unspecified location within the chapel. Thank you for listening. This has been Tales of History and Imagination. All episodes written and narrated by me, Simone Whitlow. All music, yours truly. Visit the show at historyandimagination.com. You can follow me on social media, links in the show notes, and get access to exclusive bonus content via my Patreon, also in the notes. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a like on your podcatcher of choice and share the episode as word of mouth is the best way to help shows like this grow. See you back in two weeks' time for more tales of history and imagination.